If you are, have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them up to John 18. We're finishing up our uh, uh, time in the I Am statements of John. Uh, we're going to uh, pivot next week and spend our summer in the Psalms. And then in the fall, we'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians. So just to kind of give you a roadmap on where we'll be going together in God's Word. I also want to thank you. Several of you were here between services for our time of grief and lament and prayer as we pray for our city and the crime and uh, the victims of uh, mass shootings in Buffalo and also in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, if you want the liturgy that kind of shaped the way that we were praying, uh, just feel free. I'll, I'll send that to Mary. Passages that we were mindful of to direct our prayers together. Thank you, Redeemer family, for going before the throne together. So we'll be in John 18, 1 through 14. This is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there in the garden with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he stepped forward and he said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am, or I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, then let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised that the Jews, that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, thank you so much for the way that you meet us. And Father, I, I do personally thank you for the way that you meet me week in and week out. What begins with uh, a blank page uh, turns into uh, some type of sermon to feed your people. Thank you, Lord, that um, you show up and you meet me week in and week out, and you are faithful not just to me, but to your people. And so, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, I pray that uh, you will not make us a big-headed church that knows a lot, but that does little with what we know. I pray that you will make us a big-hearted church that receives with meekness the implanted word and that your word would take root in our hearts, and that it would change how we see ourselves, how we see you, and how we see the world in which we live. 
Forgive us, Lord, especially me, Lord, my sins, blot them out. Make me and us white as snow. Thank you for doing this in Christ. Bless our time. Amen. So, uh, deja vu, uh, it's from the, the French phrase, and it means already seen. I don't know about you, but I've experienced it often in my life. Maybe I'm traveling down a road or vacationing in a place that we've gone a few times or having a conversation with my family, and it just feels strangely like we've done this exact thing before. And kids, if you've not experienced deja vu, trust me, you will. Uh, but I want to make the case to you that, that if you were to read through your Bible, then you might also experience deja vu when you come to this passage. You see, the reason I had Brian read from 2 Samuel 7 was because in that passage, David wants to build a house for the Lord. But the Lord, Yahweh, comes to David and says, I will build a house for you. I will, after you, raise up a king whose kingdom will have no end. That he will bring about peace for his people in a way that you could never, David. And before you think I'm hating on David, right? I want you to understand that I'm not. I'm only doing what David himself would want us to do. For example, in John chapter 8, Jesus says, Abraham, look forward to my day, and he was glad. In other words, Abraham don't want you around here worshiping Abraham. Abraham wants your eyes to be gazed towards King Jesus, who's a better father, right? And so the same thing with David. David would not say, hey, don't, 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 don't read or interpret Scripture in the way that I think we ought to, but rather... I'm paving the way for a king greater than me. Now, what's happening? Eight chapters after the passage that Brian read uh, is, is 2 Samuel 15 through 18. And I want you to track with me because it's too long to go read. But here I'm going to summarize it for you. David is king and David's son Absalom wants the throne. And so Absalom puts a plan in place for four years He's going to steal the king's favor. And so what Absalom did was as people came to talk to the king, Absalom stopped them along the way and made rulings and judgment for them and sent, sent them on their way. Would it be that the king had time to hear you? And he did that for four years. And the heart of Israel went towards Absalom. David's own counselor, Ahithophel, actually sided with Absalom. And so that four years later, David's closest confidant and David's son, they have started this insurrection. And so David now has to leave. He has to leave Jerusalem. And can you guess the route that David takes as he leaves? It says that he crosses over the brook of Kidron and he went through the Mount of Olives and he walked out of Jerusalem away from the war. Now, what happened? There was a showdown in chapter 18. And David kind of wants to fight. But his men tell him, David, your life is worth 10,000 of ours. You don't fight. 
You let us fight. And so David the king does not go into battle. Rather, they, his men came out hundreds and by the thousands to go to war with Absalom and 20,000 people died. 20,000 women, maybe, were made widows. Fatherless children are now abounding in Israel. And guess who lives? David. And David knows why this has happened. Because a prophet was throwing rocks and cursing David. And David's men wanted to kill that prophet. And David says, don't do it. Leave Shemai alone. Let him curse me, for the Lord has told him to do it. Think about that image. David, a war, betrayed by his best friend, closest allies. He crosses the brook of Kidron through Mount of Olives and leaves. It is no coincidence that Jesus walks the same path. He crosses through the Mount of Olives. He walks over the brook of Kidron. He has an ally that betrays him named Judas. And both Judas and Ahithophel both hung themselves. This is a case of biblical deja vu. Haven't we seen this story play out again in the Bible? And the answer is yes. Except there's difference. David left the war. Jesus went towards it. David was a man of blood. Jesus will shed his blood. David lived and 20,000 died. Jesus dies that his people might live forever. Jesus is the king that was promised. And Jesus is a better king than David. And it's no coincidence that the last I am statement comes right here. In verse 4, they asked him, whom do you seek? And he says, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he or I am. And notice what happened when Jesus said that. Look at what the soldiers, look at what happened when the soldiers, when he said that. It says that they drew back and fell to the ground. This is a normal way in which humans respond to deity. Ezekiel 1, he says, I saw one with the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw him, I fell on my face. Daniel 8, 18, I saw one before me having the appearance of the Son of Man. And when he spoke to me, I fell down with my face to the ground. Acts chapter 9, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I fell to the ground. Revelation 1, 17, this is John seeing Jesus. And I fell at his feet as though dead. This is what happens when God shows his glory Humans bow, whether you are forced to bow or you bow willfully, you will not encounter the true and living God and stand. 
you will fall down. And that's what happens in John chapter 18. They come just thinking that he is just a man, just a man. And then Jesus says, I am. And they all fall down and they all fall back. You see what's happening? Jesus is flexing on them. He is saying, you don't take my life. I lay my life down. You have no power to do anything other than what I choose to let you do me. I'm God and you better not forget about it. And so Thursday of this week was the day of ascension. If you keep up with the liturgical calendar, 40 days ago on Thursday was Easter. It was Resurrection Sunday. And 40 days after that is when Jesus ascended and then poured out his spirit. And so if you're keeping up with the church calendar, then this Thursday was a beautiful, sweet day to be reminded that Jesus has ascended. And as one author says, Jesus did not just ascend into space. He actually ascended to the Oval Office of the Universe. He ascended to the Oval Office of the Universe. He is on the throne. He is your king. He is ruling and he is reigning. And here's the thing. It's hard because we can't see him. It's hard because people go shoot up grocery stores in Buffalo. It's hard because little children are killed while they're at school. It's hard because we see so much suffering and hardship. But it's important, though we can't see him, to trust that he is still ruling and he is still good and he is still present and he is still on the throne. And what we can't see with our eyes right now we see and lay hold of by faith. And as we behold him by faith and trust his word as he reveals himself and his kingdom, we are steadied. And that's what I think John is doing. He's actually holding up your king and he's saying he is your courageous, caring, and repairing cup-bearing king. And so we're going to look at each of those three things. The first thing John shows us is that Jesus is your courageous king. How would you define courage? I would say it's strength in the face of pain and grief. It's emotional fortitude to press in even though the, the consequences might be dire. Courage is a lovely trait to behold in people. Maybe you watch This Is Us and you're a fan of Jack Pearson. I like Jack, right? That's kind of my guy. I like Jack. But I like Jack because he's a courageous man. If you remember, he actually loses his life and has a heart attack when the house is burning and his daughter's Kate's dog is in the house. And he runs into a burning house and gets his baby's dog. 
But his courage, is, is, it predates that. If you remember, he had a heart condition. And when they were drafting for Vietnam, he could not go to war. But his brother Nicky got drafted. And, and, and what did Jack do? Jack did push-ups, right, to get his heart elevated because it was a slower heart rate. He did push-ups just to get it normal so that he could pass the draft and ultimately go to Vietnam to find his brother. That's courage because you know the carnage you come back when you go to war and he knowingly goes into war knowing that he would not be the same. Or maybe you like the Avengers. You like the end game and you like Tony Stark. You hated him when he was Iron Man at the beginning, but you love him because he lays down his life to defeat Thanos right? Courage. Or one of my recent new or renewed heroes, it's, it's Charles Spurgeon. Be really honest, y'all, when, when COVID happened, before vaccines, before masks, before we knew how it was spread, when you saw images of uh, moving trucks that turned into makeshift morgues, I'm just telling you, I was afraid. I was afraid because I, 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 I didn't know if doing your wedding would make me a widow. And I didn't know if officiating funerals and being around the people of God would make my children fatherless. And it was hard. And thankfully, Pastors have pastored people through these things for ages, through persecutions, through famines, through wars. And I came across something Spurgeon wrote, and he wrote it during a time of the cholera outbreak. And these are his words. He says, I was weary in body and sick in heart, and my friends were falling one by one. A little more work and a little more weeping would have laid me low among the rest. I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under it. I was returning mournfully home from a funeral, and I saw a handwritten sign on a shoemaker's window. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is your refuge. No evil shall befall you. No plague will come near your tent. And Spurgeon wrote, the effect upon my heart was immediate. Faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure and refreshed and girt with immortality. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil and I suffered no harm. That's courage. That's a man being honest about loss and hardship and, and, and a man being honest with grief about losing people, being afraid, but then being encouraged by Psalm 91 and then saying, I get the privilege, I get the privilege of walking as a dying man, loving and serving and caring for dying people. That's courage. 
knowing that it might cost you, knowing that it might cost your life, knowing of the consequences that might come and still moving near. And you know, that's exactly what Jesus does in our passage. Evil is lurking. We know it's lurking first because it's the night. In John's gospel, night is associated with spiritual darkness. We also know evil is lurking because John tells us that this band of soldiers, which in the Greek is it's, it's where we get our word cohort from, and it could mean 600 Roman soldiers. They show up with what? Lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, here's the thing. They show up to harm and arrest and destroy Jesus. Now, what do you think Jesus will do? Do you think Jesus will be like David and hightail across the brook of Kidron and out of the Mount of Olives and away into the wilderness so that his people were harmed? That is not the posture of Jesus. That what you see Jesus doing when trouble comes, he actually, look at the text, he actually, knowing what would happen to him in verse 4, he came forward. You catch that? He didn't go away. And John's picture of Jesus is not the same picture you get of Jesus in Matthew or Luke or Mark. In John's gospel, you don't get, Father, take away this cup. In John's gospel, you know what you get? I know. I know, Judas, you're going to betray me, John 13. Peter, I know you're going to deny me three times, John 13. Judas, I know what you're about to go do. Go do it, John 13. You get Jesus knowing everything that's about to happen. And yet, in knowing that he's about to die, and knowing where he's going to die, knowing who's going to do it, knowing how he's going to die, you don't see Jesus Chunking the deuces when it's time to fight the battle. You see Jesus telling his disciples, rise, let us go towards it. You catch that? He is courageous when we're weak. He is a much better king than David. He will not send his people into war without him. He's the good shepherd who sees the wolf coming and runs towards it, even if it means he's injured in the process. And here's the good news, y'all. Jesus does not change. And you know what that means? That means he's your courageous king right now. It means that when you die and you breathe your last, and you go into a tomb, Jesus is coming for you. It means that when you walk through valleys of the shadow of death, your king is not ignoring you. He's going to come in there. It means that when life gets hard, you are never, ever, 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 ever alone because Jesus is unafraid of anything you can do. And he is unafraid of anything anyone else can do to you. He is a always showing up courageous king. And here's the thing. We got to see him. And here's the question. We don't see him with our eyes, do we? 
But if you look at what's sandwiched between the last I am statement that we covered and this I am statement, you know, you know what is? Jesus says, it is good that I go away. Because when I go away, my Father and I will send the Holy Spirit. And it is better that he comes to you. Here's the thing. When you are walking through those moments, please do not chalk it up as things just got better. Please don't chalk it up to anything other than your Messiah, courageous King showed up and he showed out and he did it by his spirit and we better give him praise for it and see him working and moving. He is your courageous king. He is unchanging. The second thing we see about Jesus is he is your caring and repairing king. It's been said that if you want to see a person's heart, look at how that person responds when their plans are interrupted. Catch that again. If you, so we, we, we got this veneer that we show to the world, or we have this false idea of how mature and godly we are, and all it takes is like an interruption. All it takes is something to come in your way and intercept your plans. And so you see it, right, when you're driving. You're driving and somebody kind of cuts you off, or you're driving and somebody's texting and on their phone in front of you, and you're about to miss the light, and, and you're supposed to be one-tenth of the mile down the road. But because they didn't cut you off or they didn't been on their phone, now you honking and you're angry and I'm guilty of it, right? So guess what? What's happening to me in that moment is, dude, you're not as patient as you thought you were, right? Or what about when you have an important deadline to meet and someone knocks on your door and you feel your heart rate rising? Or you've mapped out the future for your kids and they just ain't, it ain't what you thought it was going to be. And I get it, right? Parents, we're going to make some mistakes and we get grace for that, right? And some of the decisions our kids make, that ain't on me, brother. You are an individual who will individually stand before a righteous and holy God and you will be held accountable for your individual choices. Now, I'm a part of that. I'm a part of the system. I'm a part of the parenting. But, but, but do you know what it feels like to kind of have these dreams of what life will be like? And all of a sudden, man, it just it doesn't work that way. Or you place a bid on a house and somebody outbids you, right? Or you say, man, when I get 23, I want to be married and X and Y and Z. And you're like 30 right now. And you've been in weddings, but not your own. And you're kind of bitter and salty. Or maybe you envision your golden years when the kids get out of the house. You want to do X and Y and Z and A, B, C. And then you get a cancer diagnosis. You lose your money in the stock market. What is your heart doing when your plans are interrupted? It shows our hearts. Now, there's an interruption in this passage. Jesus's heart is set on surrender. 
In verse 8, he says, if you seek me, let these men go. And so it's a done deal. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He wants to lay down his life. As a matter of fact, if you, if you skip verses 10 and 11, it reads like a neat little unit, right? Skip what Peter does. This was to fulfill with the word that he was spoken of those whom you gave me. I've lost not one. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers, they arrested Jesus and they bound him. This is exactly what Jesus wants. What Jesus doesn't want is the interruption of Peter. And so all of a sudden, Jesus has surrendered. They come, he walks to them, take me, I'm gonna lay down my life, you have it. And all of a sudden you get 10 and 11, you get Peter doing what Peter does. Peter pulls out a knife and he cuts a man's ear off. And now Jesus, he got to tend to this blood. He got to tell this dude to put this knife up and he's going to fix this man's ear. That's not a part of the plan. Jesus's plan is to lay down his life. He is interrupted by Peter. Now, what's beautiful about John is the other gospel writers, they don't tell us who cut the man's ear off. Only John. John is like, Peter, I ain't letting you off the hook. We're going to show all your bad parts, right? Only John tells us the name of the servant whose ear was cut off. It's Malchus. And here's the question we ought to be asking. Jesus, how will you respond to this interruption? And here's what we discover. He does not tell Peter, you're worthless. He doesn't say, you fool. He doesn't say you screw up. He doesn't say you're interrupting my plan. Now get out of the way. His response to Peter after interrupting his agenda is discipleship. I'm a disciple you through your errors because I care for you. And so notice what he tells Peter, put your sword into the sheath. In Luke, he says, Peter, no more of this, no more of living by the sword. In Matthew, he says, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Then he says, do you not think that I could right now appeal to my father and he would not at once send me 12 legions of angels? Now take that in. They come to him with a cohort And guess how many cohorts is in a legion? 120. So Peter is saying, dude, Peter, do you not know? Do you not see? They got one cohort. I could ask my daddy for a legion. And one legion of my angels is 120 of their cohorts. If this were a matter of fighting with the sword and fighting with the gun and fighting with weapons of this world, do you not know that I will win? The war will be over before it even starts. But my kingdom is not of this world. Put the sword back down. What does Jesus do? He disciples him. And Peter knew better. Peter had heard. You have heard that it was said to you, hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them that you may be sons of the Father. You have heard that it was saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and an ear for an ear. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him your other. In other words, this was not an information gap. This was an affection gap. 
that Peter in the moment of crises and temptation knew the truth because he had been with Jesus for three years, but he was powerless to live it. And what does Jesus do when Peter's weakness surfaces? He cares for him by discipling him about the kingdom. And what else does Jesus do? He could have left Malchus unattended. He could have repaid the servant arresting him with evil. He could have let him go the remainder of his days with unilateral hearing loss. We need two ears in the same way that we need two eyes. With two ears, our brain detects where sound is coming from. With two ears, our brain selectively drowns out noises so that we can hear the people in front of us. With two ears, the, 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 the high-pitched sounds like birds chirping are not muffled. But when you have one ear, all of that is shot. And Jesus could have responded, right, to Malchus's siding with them by leaving him alone. But he does not. If you let the other gospels speak symphonically, we learn in Luke 22 that Jesus actually touches Malchus's ear and heals him. Do you see what's happening? This interruption is a window into the heart of Christ. He epitomizes love and care. He is not simply doing caring things, but care and repair burst from his heart. He trusts that Peter's blowing it is a part of the Father's plan. He trusts that Malchus's presence right there on the receiving end of worldly anger is a part of God's plan. He knows that Peter will betray him in the next chapter and he will restore Peter later. And that, too, is a part of the father's plan. And here's what we see about King Jesus. He is caring who disciples us through our folly and our sin. And he's repairing He fixes the messes we make. That ear on the ground is a mess that Peter made. And if you think Malchus's ear fell to the ground, then what you see is Jesus picking that ear up and mending it. And he was not the one who did it. His disciple did it. Why? Why is that so important? Do you view Jesus this way? That when you find yourself more like Peter, where you know more and you don't do it, how do you think Jesus feels about you? Is he saying, you fool, how could you? Get out of my kingdom. I'm sick of you. I'm tired of you. Or... Does he say, you're my son and you're my daughter and my kingdom is not of this world and I give you grace upon grace upon grace and you were wrong and it's okay. I give you grace, repent and endeavor a new obedience and I'm going to fix what you mess up. 
And see, some of y'all know what that tastes like. When you've messed up your marriage and you thought it was over. And King Jesus showed up and said, I can fix it. And when you made mistakes raising your kids. And Jesus shows up and says, but I can fix it. And when you made unwise decisions. And he shows up and says, but I can fix it. I am fixing it. It's in my nature to not only redeem you and love you, but to begin repairing the things that your hands and your heart has broken. I'm that good of a king that I care for you and I will repair, I will restore the years that the locusts have devoured. I will restore it if you will but bow the knee, if you will but trust me, if you will but walk by faith and in repentance, there is no limit to the thing that I can't put back together again. He's a good king. He's courageous and he's caring and he's repairing. And the last thing we see in our passage is the promise, the reason why you can take these two promises to the bank. Pastor L, how do I know that Christ is going to show up? How do I know that he cares? How do I know that he is repairing? How do I know? It's because he's your cup drinking king. You notice when Peter cuts Malchus's right, cuts off his right ear, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. But that's not the last thing he says. The last thing he says is, shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? And if you read John's gospel, this may very well be the last thing his disciples heard before he was arrested. The last thing they hear is, I'm going to go drink the cup. And the question that we have to ask is, what is this cup? What is he talking about? You see, in Jesus's day, kings would have cup bearers and cup bearers would drink the wine before the king got to drink it. In case you wanted to kill the king, your wine bearer would die. And so this whole idea, one of a king that's going to drink a cup and is not going to let his disciples drink it, that is, that is otherworldly. But the significance of the cup is far deeper than how kings ate and drank in Jesus' day. This is actually Old Testament language. That if you go back and read prophetic literature, and you can write these passages down, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, Jeremiah 25. Here's what you're going to see when you read those different passages. So first, God tells the ten northern tribes, you will drink the cup of my wrath, the cup of desolation, you will drink it and they will drink it because of their idolatry. And then you get to Ezekiel 23 and then God turns to the two north, the two southern tribes and he tells them, you two will drink the same cup that the ten northern tribes drank. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. It will be a cup of horror and desolation. So not only the ten northern tribes, then the two southern tribes, and then when you you get to Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah said, everybody drinking the cup. Everybody. I don't even know how to spell it. Everybody. 
The Lord God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They will all drink and all stagger because of the sword that I'm sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, its kings, its officials, its hissing and curse at this day. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and his servants and his officials and all his people. And then in verse 20, and all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth and the king of Babylon. You see the progression? First, we're starting with Israel, but baby, God's cup of wrath, it ain't just for Israel. He said, all the nations gonna drink it. There ain't no holy nation according to a righteous and holy God. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so this cup of wrath is a cup of judgment. It's a cup of judgment that God will make everyone drink who have not bowed the knee to Jesus. But there's a promise in Isaiah. The promise in Isaiah is in verse 22 of chapter 51. But I will take that cup from you and that bowl of wrath from you and you will drink it no more. And the question becomes, who then will drink the cup? Surely this cup is not just kicking Israel out of the land, right? That's like, that's like so small compared to what, what's really in the cup. What's really in the cup is kicking us away from his presence forevermore. That's what's in the cup. And that is the consequence for unrepentant sin. That is the consequence for not bowing the knee to King Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, I'm going to drink it. David can't drink this cup. David can't fight this battle. God himself will drink the cup of God's wrath. This is the guarantee. And to fully understand what's going on, we got to read the Gospels in symphony. Here's what I mean. All the other Gospel accounts except John tell us the weapons they had. And you know the weapons they had? They had swords. And where does John alone tell us where this takes place? A garden. Where have you seen judgment, swords, and a garden before in the Bible? It's in Genesis. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and cherubim were placed in the garden with flaming swords so that they could not get back in. And so Jesus knowing what's about to happen is the one who comes to the sword, not of these men, the sword of God's wrath. And Jesus says, I will drink that cup. And because I drink it for you, you never have to drink it. Because I drink it for you and you bow the knee to me, you are in covenant with me now. Covenant bound in my blood. 
And my posture towards you is never, ever, 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 ever wrath again. That's why Caiaphas says more than he knows. He says, it is good that one man should lay down his life for the people. And Jesus is like, yeah, you sinner, you preaching the gospel though, right? Because I'm going to lay down my life for my people. And no hymn captures this like one written by Anne Cousin. Listen to these words, and I'm going to close with this. Oh, Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, our load was laid on thee. Thou stood in the sinner's stead, did bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. Death and curse were in our cup, O Christ, t'was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me, that bitter cup, love drank it up, now blessings drought for me, Jehovah bade his sword awake, O Christ, it woke against thee, thy blood the flaming blade must slake, thine heart its sheath must be, all for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. That's the result. There is no low, no bruising, no sword, but eternal and present blessings. This is your king. He is your I am. He is yours. And how do we respond to that king? We bow. We worship. We enjoy we are enabled by his spirit to be caring and repairing people. This is your king. May it be so. In the Black Panther, there's a scene when Eric Killmonger is destroying T'Challa. And he holds him and he says, is this your king? Is this your king? And then he picks him up and he throws him over the edge of a waterfall and the people's countenance, they, it just drops. Their king has been killed. But little does Eric Killmonger know that the Jabari tribe find him and they nurse him back to health. And then the Black Panther shows up again and he rules and reigns and he defeats Eric Killmonger. That is your king. If you look at him just from John 18, you might be tempted to say, is this your king? And his head is about to be bruised and his body is about to be destroyed. He's about to go to a cross and Satan will gloat over him. Is this your king? But here's the thing. Satan does not know that the Holy Spirit is going to bring life back into King Jesus. And three days later, he's going to show up and he's going to show out and he's going to ascend to the right hand of the father and he's going to rule and reign now and forevermore. That is your king. Let us worship him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for being the king our hearts were made for. We need a king better than David better than Bush, better than Trump. 
better than Clinton, better than Biden, better than any other person to ever walk this earth. Our hearts were made for you. Help us, Jesus, to love your courage, to see your caring and repairing ways. Help us, Lord, when Satan tempts us to doubt your goodness, to see that you have drank the cup of God's wrath, and there is no more for us. We are yours. You are ours now and forevermore. May it change us for Jesus' sake. Amen.